Welcome to Citizen Detective with me, Paul Detman. So this is a bonus episode for you because I've been on vacation. It is a short book review of Mindhunter by John Douglas, helped by the journalist Mark Olshaker. John Douglas was one of the leading lights in the behavioural sciences at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia in the 70s. So this was a long time before DNA collection at crime scenes and fingerprinting using genetics. And at the time, the FBI were looking for ways to catch serial killers, which were a little bit different from the mainstream. And I think it's easy to forget or to overlook that even back in the 70s, you know, if you look at crime enforcement and the police in the UK, their methods had not really changed much since the time of Sherlock Holmes. Yes, they had access to fingerprinting, but that was about it. So to catch a criminal and take a serial killer in particular off the streets, you basically had to get a confession or get the fingerprints and everybody just knew to wear gloves or get such a weight of circumstantial evidence that you thought the jury or you you had every confidence that the jury would find the person guilty. So the magic bullets that we now think of or see in crime dramas, oh, just get the DNA sample and then do a match... And if you can't get it off the suspect to cross-reference, just get it off a family member or just get some particles off the body which cross-references to some other particles found in some other obscure location that we can tie back to the suspect. That scientific aspect was really missing back in the 70s. And so the FBI, amongst others, came upon this idea of using psychology and profiling to understand the behaviours of their suspect. And it's almost, it reminds me in many ways of method acting, where you literally walk in the shoes of the killer and try and imagine their next move. What kind of victim do they go for? What kind of location do they kill in? What weapon do they use? How prepared are they? Do they prepare carefully and meticulously? Many serial killers are above average intelligence. Or do they just rush in on impulse and just hack away? Or is it some combination And maybe one scene which looked like they were not very well organised was because they were disturbed during the act. So all of these kind of ideas, which were popularised very much for my generation in the film The Silence of the Lambs, with Anthony Hopkins as the killer and Jodie Foster as the young, blue flame FBI recruit who has been taught by a guy called Jack Crawford. And their rumour is, here's today's factoid, that Jack Crawford was based on John Douglas. And Scott Glenn, the actor who plays Jack, actually comes to see John Douglas as part of his character research. And it's said that the crime scene photos he saw were so appalling and shocking and surprising to him that he just had no idea this kind of activity was going on, that he actually changed his view on the death penalty. He was previously a libertarian who believed that everybody could recover or be rehabilitated and after he worked with John Douglas he decided pretty much that that was not the case that there were certain individuals who had committed such appalling acts repeatedly in cold blood that the death penalty in certain circumstances could be supported. So I thought it would be useful to understand why I'm reviewing this book. I first bought and read this book in the early 1990s. It first came out in 1995 in the US and I didn't see The Silence of the Lambs when it first came out so I'd probably recently seen it. And when I realised that John Douglas was the blueprint for Jack Crawford, and then I read further and found that there was mention of uh, Jack the Ripper and indeed the Yorkshire Ripper, a criminal not too far from the shadows during my childhood in the early 1980s, I just had to get it. 
and I got this edition from a book club, but I took it back off the shelf looking for subjects to entertain you guys. And when I started the research, I realised that this is now into season two on Netflix. So Mindhunter, the book, and Mindhunter, the TV show, are connected. And it's amazing to me that these activities which went on in the mid to late 70s, when all of this behavioural psychology was being put into practice by John Douglas and Bob Resner, that this is now still seen as amazing, interesting stuff 40, 50 years down the line, to the extent that a Netflix audience would be interested in it. And I know 70s drama is all the rage at the moment, but still, it's a test of the ingenuity and charisma of these guys that they are still remembered. And of course, they wrote the books, so whoever writes the book gets remembered to an extent. But it's quite clear from reading John Douglas's book that he is a a character. He had to be, he was a pioneer, and anybody who is a pioneer who is trying to change the received wisdom and change the antiquated processes of a large organisation such as the FBI needs to have balls of steel and be seriously charismatic as well. So that's by way of introduction. That's why the book means something to me. It was one of the very first true crime books that I bought uh, when I thought I liked horror movies. Now I find them too gory. But John Douglas refers to himself as a blue flamer, and I've just found out that that is somebody in the US military or law enforcement who is far too keen and is at risk of burnout. So John Douglas was identified by Bob Resner and others as being a high flyer, a quick learner, and a guy who was going to have a great big career. So just to give you some dates here, Rob Ressler started in the FBI in 1970, and John Douglas came along in 1977. So there is, in career terms, almost a generation between them, but only seven years. And Ressler's famous, he's also in the TV show Mindhunter. But it's really John's book that I recall as being the first to really try and describe what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how it was different from what went before. And I've already said that what went before was very much a kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of law enforcement. This was working with psychologists and even psychiatrists to try and put together guidelines and processes for understanding the mindset of a serial killer. And in the past, people didn't really try to do this, partly because it's so horrific. You know, it's seriously disturbed, the crime scene photos, walking through, trying to imagine the motive and trying to understand how somebody like this operates was difficult. It wasn't a natural thing for the police to do. It was cerebral. It was somewhat academic. And it was believed to be kind of like fortune telling, a bit like the mentalist, but less effective. So most police would frown on these kind of ideas, certainly in the early 70s. And it was only after they saw some successes and progress that they realised it had some potential. And of course, as John Douglas points out, if he solves 10 cases, he's a hero. And if he messes up on one of them, the whole unit could have been shut down. So high stakes, high risk with nothing to gain is apparently how he thought towards the end of his career after he'd been reprimanded in, in writing for speaking to the press in a careless way, even though he'd been asked to. And at the same time, his reprimand arrived in the post. Just a few weeks later, he got a cheque for $250 thanking him for solving that very same case. One of the things that John Douglas points out is that there are three key things to look for in the background of a serial killer. One is cruelty to animals, another is a fascination or an association with fire and arson, and another is bedwetting beyond the kind of typical age. And if you get those three things together in a suspect, the chances that you have found your killer increase. It's not guaranteed, but certainly to see all three things, and some killers only have two or even one, 
But if you have all three, you start to get suspicious about that individual and you start to dig a little bit deeper, shall we say. At one stage in the book, Douglas compares what he's trying to do with the DSM manual for mental illness in the US, which is a Bible, a list of all the possible mental illnesses and how to look for them and how to define them. He wanted some kind of similar Bible for serial killers, for behavioural science, serial rapists. A lot of the people that they trained at the Quantico Academy were police officers and they were very reluctant and resistant to this kind of training. But during these visits, sometimes the police would come to Quantico, sometimes Ressler and Douglas would go to see the police in their local state, their local police station. They would drop by prisons unannounced, looking for the most violent and prolific serial killers to interview and ask about their crimes. And he said that this kind of unannounced visit probably couldn't happen now, but the surprise element made it more likely that the prisoner would want to see them. And the prisoners were very interested to hear their questions and to be looked at and talked to and to be given a chance to retrace their steps. Not always for the right reasons, but nevertheless they took notes, but nevertheless they took notes and really tried to get inside the heads of these guys and pretty much every single one is a male. One thing that I found out in this book, which you might like to know, is that older women are often attacked by very young men or teenagers. The thinking is that younger men who are early in their serial killing, uh, can we call it careers? That's appalling. Attack older women who are weaker and more vulnerable because of a lack of confidence. And they may then move on to younger women as they proceed. And this idea that the MO, the modus operandi, the signatures of a crime might vary with time was actually quite revolutionary because everybody used to say, you may have seen this yourself in detective dramas, that if you understand the characteristics of the crime, and if they match the characteristics of another crime, then you can be pretty sure, if it's in the same area, that the same person did the crime. But of course, with serial killers, you could be talking about 10 or 20 victims or even more over a period of many, many years or even decades, if you look at the Golden State Killer, for example. Add to that the fact that the killers are often watching the news and they can sometimes deliberately vary their characteristics to throw off law enforcement, you actually get this idea of a changing pattern, a changing fingerprint. And I've seen a matrix in a book I reviewed recently about the Yorkshire Ripper, that there was a big matrix of all of the victims and all of the different types of weapon and scenario, whether it was dark or light, who the victim was, how old they were, that could be put onto a matrix. And the Yorkshire Ripper very rarely ticked all of the boxes for every single victim. There are key characteristics, but there are so many key characteristics that maybe about half of them would change for each victim. So you wouldn't see 100% of all of the characteristics for every single crime. In terms of interview and interrogation technique, Douglas talks about the point of vulnerability, of finding a focus in the villain's mind, in the suspect's mind, that they are sensitive about. It might be their height, it might be their age, it might be how they look, it might be something that they took or did at the crime scene. He mentions that if you can find that vulnerability through heavy research and through probing questions, you can increase the chances of a confession. And he gave guidance to various lawyers about this during the 80s. He would tell them what to ask and how to ask it to force the suspect into a not necessarily a confession, but a temper tantrum or a, some kind of explosion of emotion that would make the jury think that they were guilty. In this particular example, he asked them to take a blood-stained rock, which was the murder weapon, into an interview room and just place it on the desk, never mentioning it. And of course, the guy couldn't take his eyes off the rock for the whole interview. It became very nervous and anxious, much more so than in any previous interview. 
And he also talks about visiting the UK, so he travelled the world. When this became more successful and more established, Douglas took these ideas to the UK, to Brams Hill, which he compares to Quantico and says this is the UK's police training academy. And there there was a guy who wanted to talk about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and he said, we've been sent a letter by the Ripper, and based on a case in the US and the style of the letter and what Douglas could be told and what he knew about the Yorkshire Ripper case, he pretty much felt straight away that the letter was not from the killer and that turned out to be true. West Yorkshire police wasted thousands of hours and millions of pounds trying to find out who wrote the letters when it was a red herring from the beginning. Now there's always a risk with this kind of book that the writer seems to be the hero, infallible. That's not the case with John Douglas. He does tell a few stories against himself, like the reprimand, the written reprimand that he received. There's a feeling, and a well-earned, a well-earned and justified feeling that he took on the world and won. And I think that can go to your head, especially especially when you are depicted in on Netflix. I think having your own drama on Netflix could go to anybody's head. But I think what Douglas did, and, and I always liked the Jack Crawford character, I thought he was a very interesting character, the way he mentored Clarice and the way he, I seem to remember, was reluctant to let her go and talk to the serial killer because... She was so new and the killer was so evil. But he gave her some tips and it all worked out in the end, as you know. There is a risk with making this stuff into Hollywood drama. But at the same time, we are all fascinated by the murderer, by the villain. And what this science, this behavioural science was trying to do was to bring a method and an organisation to how they approached the mind of the killer. And it got to the point where John Douglas felt like he could predict the next move. And if you have a serial killer you know they're going to keep on going until they either get arrested or or something else happens to them or a crime goes wrong. So you know that they're going to strike again. So the ability to predict where and when and how they might strike gives you a massive glimpse of the future. It really is fortune-telling in the in the strict sense. But it's all based on science and case law, if you like. Looking at previous cases to understand the generic types of people involved in this kind of crime. It's a fabulous story. It's a fabulous book. It's really easy to read. It's it's gripping. It's interesting. Anybody interested in true crime would like Mindhunters. I'm sure it's better than the Netflix series, which I'm going to watch this weekend. But there you go. That is our special episode purely on Mindhunter. I don't have a cold case for you this week. I am working on a few things in the background and I need some more time for those. So while you're waiting and while I'm on vacation, I leave you with Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker published in 1995. See you next week on Citizen Detective.